You're listening to the podcast from The Stage, the world's oldest and best theatre publication. Thestage.co.uk Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Stage podcast and our final visit to Brighton for the Festival and the Fringe. This week I'm talking to Hydrocracker and Blast Theory, the two companies behind immersive undercover police show Operation Black Antler. Theatre maker Tim Crouch continues his conversation with Brighton Festival theatre producer Orla Flanagan, and there are more reviews from Tom Wicker and Tracy Sinclair. But first, Brighton-based theatre companies Hydrocracker and Blast Theory are behind one of the festival's hits, Operation Black Antler. It's an immersive piece in which audience members become undercover police officers, attempting to infiltrate a gathering of a far-right protest group. Blast Theory are no strangers to controversial work, in fact one of their shows involved kidnapping members of the public, while another asked its audiences to rob an actual bank. But Operation Black Antler caused a bit of a stir when the festival programme was announced because of some misjudged marketing copy, which promised a thrilling experience. Revelations about undercover officers who had slept with their targets and even had children with them prompted a backlash from anti-surveillance activists, who presumed that the show was offering an insensitive and offensive thrill. When I experienced the show, I found that was far from the truth, and I spoke to Matt Adams from Blast Theory and Jem Wall from Hydrocracker about the marketing copy and their intentions behind the show. Operation Black Antler is a piece of immersive theatre in which each audience member goes undercover as a police officer and then visits a community event to infiltrate it and attempt to gather intelligence on a new group of protesters. And how did that theme come about? Well, it originally began from a desire for both companies to work with each other. We both share, I think, a love of immersive work that puts the audience not only watching it, but in it, and an interest for both of us to make work that has a political edge. And I think the stimulus for this was a a book called Undercover, which made revelations about what the Special Demonstration Squad had done. And this raised a huge number of thoughts for us about growing surveillance in this country, the amount of freedoms we, we all may be required to give up in order to keep ourselves safe and quite quite where that line should be drawn. Looking at when the programme was announced, there was a bit of backlash against what people assumed the show would be. What I found interesting experiencing the show was just how far removed that assumption that people made was from the final product. The show that we experienced, was that always going to be the case? It was always going to be structured in that way. We were interested to put the audience in a position where you are complicit to some degree with the activities of state surveillance. And then you have to decide for yourself how to navigate that and and are invited after the show, I think, to reflect a little bit on whether what you've just done was the right course of action. We felt it was vital to frame that in the context of the revelations about undercover policing. But clearly what we had not thought through carefully is that people would make an assumption that we were making a show in which you were an undercover police officer infiltrating non-violent left-wing protest groups through deceit and abuse. Um, That was clearly a mistake on our part. We also recognised that some of the language we used to describe the show was inappropriate so we made a rod for our own backs but then we also felt that it was important to keep the the actual show itself fairly secret because there is a strong impact from the show in terms of what you're asked to do and how you have to try and respond to that challenge. 
one of the things I found really difficult about it was where you place your allegiance. So do you place it in a kind of state-sanctioned surveillance system which comes with a, you know, a huge set of problems or do you place it with a group of disorganised but fairly normal people who just have really polar viewpoints from mm. me and presumably a lot of other audience members? Do you have a, a side on which you think audience members are falling? Do you have a side on which you kind of sympathise with more or do you want that ambivalence? I think art thrives in ambivalence and our role is not to tell an audience what to think but to provoke questions the way we've done it by, by putting the power in the hands of the audience as police officers the oppressors if you like i think begs much deeper questions than if we'd taken a safer choice which would have been to sit from the victim's point of view it is more disturbing it is more uncomfortable there's no doubt about that and some of the controversy we have to accept if you really have been a victim i think both of us could see that, that, that our, our copy might have upset people but but our intention behind it was always to have a really serious examination of of what surveillance does and what it and what it means a lot of the experience of the show is in fact just sitting and talking to people on a on a very human level and something which at the beginning you might expect to be super high tech and code names and all this kind of stuff actually boils down to human interaction well we did a lot of work with a director called mike bradwell to work on character so it's very important to us that all the actors in it absolutely real and it merges in the feedback certainly it's been an audience even at the very end when they're coming for feedback there's a kind of paranoia not knowing who's an actor and who's not and that blur I think is something we're, we're really thrilled about there's a challenge with immersive theatre which is about how you give an audience an environment that they can inhabit and then have agency within that environment. And it was very important to us to try and find a structure where, essentially because it is about meeting strangers and talking to people and sizing them up, that it's something that almost all of us have some degree of experience at. You know, what we're trying to do is push um, immersive theatre a little bit in terms of giving the audience a really deep set of interactions. One of the frustrations that I, I find with immersive theatre sometimes is you very often get the sense that you are being herded towards a narrative conclusion that really kind of limits your sense of agency. Or on the other hand you can go and see stuff where it's an amazing world but there's no narrative or story. That frustrates me hugely and I think what we're trying to bridge is, is can you can you be the hero of your own story? Can you develop a, a, a narrative structure? We, we give enough narrative structure, uh, um, but enough room to have agency. I mean, it's also important to say that, you know, what we found through the research, both into undercover policing and in terms of anti-immigration groups, is that it's fairly pedestrian stuff. You know, it actually is sitting in rooms and listening in on, on things and getting to know people and writing down that intelligence and passing it on. Um, and and even in far right groups, you know, the images of sort of neo Nazis, Zeke Heiling, but but that's that's only one extreme tip of a huge well of far right and anti immigration sentiment in the UK. Fundamentally, those people look very like you and me. They're not people you would spot as you walk down the street. We've talked about this show being at one level just conversation, but it's also doing something theatrically quite challenging in that within two or three minutes of coming through the door of the first room, as an audience, you are expected to take on the idea that you are undercover police operatives about to go on an operation, and so you then are um, invited to, to acquire all of the characteristics and all of the viewpoint of, of police officers. And then, not long after that, your job as a police officer is to acquire yet another identity as, a, as someone with anti-immigrant views, and so you are then taking on a second identity. Although you are 
just having a conversation. It is seen through the prism of these layers of deception or pretense or role-playing. So even just asking for a drink from the barman, you're not sure whether they are part of it or not part of it. All of these kinds of recursive loops of questioning and paranoia and jeopardy are all at work. Another really fascinating thing about it is the kind of malleability of the form that you've created so that one of the really easy things to do with, the, with an immersive show is not to take it seriously and to go with a kind of light-hearted attitude. Because, yeah. you know, it's a piece of theatre, you might just be there for a night, yeah. night's entertainment. Yeah. But actually, even if you did that in Black Antler, it would still adapt to that. It would still adapt to your attitude. We play with that at a level. I mean, it is a game, but I think we've often said that it's a, it's a very serious game. So we certainly don't mean it's trivial or superficial. We keep the, the acting, you know, absolutely straight and honest and sincere but we will adapt certainly to people how deeply they've gone into it. I think also when you make interactive projects you really need to be able to accommodate all the diverse forms in which people might interact and that's that's not just whether they take it seriously or lightly it's to do with how confident people feel around those sorts of things and so it's really important to us that this isn't a show for people who are confident brassy performers have a great time and people who are more shy do not Um, and we've gone to a lot of trouble to make sure that even if you're very cautious you're quite nervous about the situation that will affect how it unfolds for you but it won't diminish the experience you have i'll certainly look for often a quiet member of the audience to to make that a good experience and not making people at any point feel uncomfortable this is not just the aesthetics it's not just the art of creating a good show it's about the politics of, of immersive and interactive theater because the worst kinds of experience i've had in immersive shows are where i feel like i'm being herded in a way that is essentially like Disney World, dealing with large numbers of, of bodies that have to be pushed through a system. And actually it's to the convenience of the creators of the show if you just do exactly as you're told. You know, I think that's very problematic, especially if you're suggesting that you're inviting control and you're inviting an audience to participate fully and interact, then you really have to do that in a way that is meaningful and and is carefully thought through for the full range of audience responses. And in this show, that might be people who are extremely politically hostile to the entire conceit. So we even prepared in rehearsal for people who would try and stop the show because there may well be people who feel that the entire concept of acting out undercover surveillance is not appropriate. Presumably no one's tried to stop the show yet. The biggest things we've had is people who are overly assertive or borderline aggressive about what they think the the show invites and permits. And we have a series of of mechanisms both within the world and out of the world to cope with that. In terms of stopping the show, if what behind your question was about the people who protested about the show, a number of the, the representatives from the protest groups have been we invited them to rehearsals and they engage with us fully and it's great to have your work challenged to be honest and that their notes and engagement i think has deepened our understanding of issues and i think we've been able to pass it on to audience and they've added a lot to how we put the work into context so they've absolutely engaged and participated one of the amazing pleasures of showing the work here at brighton festival is the amazing diversity of audience members who've come including undercover officers, surveillance officers, activists who have been uh, on the receiving end of undercover policing, or activists who have themselves infiltrated other activist groups, people who've infiltrated far-right groups and neo-Nazi groups themselves. Common, people from Greenham Common, long way back in protest history. Yeah, Um, and and so, you know, we've learned all all the time, we are learning all the time from those conversations. And I'd say from my point of view, it goes right to the heart of why I try to set up Hydrocracker, because... So I spent 25 years as a do more traditional work as an actor, which I do love and enjoy hugely. But in that work, 
I go in one door, the audience goes in another door, I go out of another door, they go out of another door, and we never meet. Whereas here, you interact with the audience in the same light, eye to eye, they're really there. It's what theatre was about for me, and that's why I love making this kind of work. Do you know yet if uh, Operation Black Antler is going to have a life beyond the festival? It's going to Chatham. It will be shown in Kent. It's going to be a very different experience for for all of us. But effectively, yeah, making the show fresh. Yeah, it's really exciting. It does feel like you've got structure, but you can remake it fresh every time. That was Matt Adams from Blast Theory and Jem Wall from Hydrocracker. Now, in the last episode, Tim Crouch and Orla Flanagan talked about the Brighton Festival and the Shakespearean clown show, The Complete Deaths. In the second part of the conversation, we dive straight into the rest of Tim's work, starting with his play Adler and Gibb, which is being revived at the Edinburgh Fringe this summer. There's a formal journey in that play, and there's a big narrative journey, and sometimes I think people couldn't permeate the form to paddle in the narrative, uh, and people got very frustrated by that. I think if I make the story a little stronger, then you might find that nut easier to crack. I remember when I saw it at the Royal Court, because I had read... I'd read an early version of the script, right. and um, I, I felt I felt almost a sense of like like I was gloating toward the audience because I kind of knew I knew the, the the rough landscape of where I was at. It's that that permanent thing about theatre, which is um, you have to try to take everything in in just that one sitting that you get to see it, and very few people go and see a show twice mm. in the way that you might see a movie twice because you've uh-huh. got a DVD sort of mm. three years later or whatever you know it's the same with um, with an oak tree I found which is that the first time I watched it I'm just you know working out what's going on just mm. experiencing it hearing, listening to the story you're trying to do everything at once in your head thinking oh, how's this actor coping with it? How does this compare to other actors who've performed Mm. it? Mm. And then the second time, when you're seeing another actor cope with it and perform it, you can begin to sort of feel a bit more comfortable and, and, Mm. yeah, try to... For audiences, for an oak tree, do you you think many do come back to see it, experience it? Like, it must be one of those... Against the norm. I can't tell you how different, you know, yeah. you don't know unless you yeah. see it more than once, but I can yeah. vouch for it being very different each yeah. time. Even though the text is all the same, but we know that text is mm. the tip of an iceberg, mm-hmm. really, so it's all the other stuff, the emotional stuff. Is your intention with an, an, oak, an oak tree just to sort of keep giving it life every so often, or, <laughs> or do you not know? I mean, the ecology of my work, yeah, is that I think I might even be doing my arm again next year. I've done a clown show earlier this year at the Unicorn Theatre, a piece called Jeremy Hartleby and Ugamore, with three young clowns who were fantastic. The year of the clown. For me, yeah. yeah. For me, that's, yeah, true. And I'm about to take Malvolio to America next week, mm. uh, which is a kind of, I mean, I would never have called it a clown show, but people mm. have called it a clown show. Mm. So I'm doing quite a lot of that stuff. Mm. Um, Almost all your shows happening simultaneously yeah and then Adler and Gibb is going to be touring next Mm. year as well Uh, and I can just sit back and regret not having ever done any royalty deals on any any of my contracts oh yeah Uh, so there you go you know theatre what an idiot I didn't know that it's quite unusual for me you know I'm not not a traditional director I'm not an experienced Mm. director uh, I, the first thing I ever kind of properly directed was The Taming of the Shrew for the RSC, which was a cast of nine, and I edited it down. And, and I was, you know, I, have, I remember vividly a moment where in the first day of rehearsal, we'd done the meet and greet, and then I had to get everyone to stand up and start doing things. And I've always been on the other side of that. Mm. And I, that was like time stood still, and I felt like I wanted to have a little cry, and I wanted to leave the room, <laughs> because that's not my 
default you know mm. my default is to work with directors mm. or work with you know there, there's material that's been done either before the process so me writing do you know what I mean so mm. directing it is in the moment mm. and I'm slowly getting a handle on that mm. but I wouldn't say that I'm uh, super experienced in the last maybe year or two years that's kind of how we've seen you and, and seen your work is through directing yeah, yeah I, I, I do have the beginnings of an idea the forming of an idea for which i have bought books and have written notes and there is a part in it for me mm-hmm. <laughs> but i hope it's not because i egotistically want to put myself back on stage i hope that's not the case in any of my plays i hope there is always a sort of considered reason why i might exist in my plays mm-hmm. and the next piece i think will be taking that you know I always think there was a track with my work from my arm, the first thing, to an oak tree, to England, the gallery piece, to to the author and to Adler and Gibb. And they are sort of a... There's a track of ideas, and all those plays exist on that track. And I think the next one, if I eventually have time to write it, will be will be the next one on that track. Before I started to write, I used to just be one of those people who would sit in pubs and moan about theatre. Yeah. You know, and so uh, uh, I still do that sometimes. (laughs) But it's much better now that I can process my frustrations and join the argument practically. That's good. Yeah, That's a good place Mm. to be. I'm going to Chicago with Malvolio next week, and I'm just totally excited because I've been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of working and a lot of directing and a lot Mm. of structuring and managing and organising, and I know that for an hour and 10, 15 minutes, uh, six times next week, with a new audience, I will get to play. Mm. I will get to play, and I don't want to lose that opportunity because I do sometimes get too bogged down with the what I would say, the more grown-up stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I, I want those pieces to stay alive. I remember a long time ago, probably before I met you, but maybe I'd seen some of your work, and I found there was a booklet of maybe British Council Showcase or something like that. And I remember, so everyone else was saying their objective, you know, for the company, you know, fancy language and blah, blah, the blah. Policy. Yeah, yeah, policy kind of talk. And then yours was to make the work of Tim Crouch (laughs) and it really stuck with me at the time and since that sense of that's what it's about. It's an extraordinary uh, accomplishment of what Brighton Festival and Dome do because it's not just Brighton Festival it is Brighton Festival and Dome and there is a year-round program and usually with a festival the size of Brighton Festival there is a separate discrete organization that you know with staff and (laughs) adequate staff and adequate money just to bring a festival to life once a year, like a big mm. festival like this. Mm. And that's not the case. That's not only the case, because they do that and they also manage to, uh, yeah, on, on very skeleton staff mm. almost, mm. they manage as well to, to give us... And, and there's not much. We've lost some venues in Brighton. We've lost uh, the old Nightingale Theatre. The Nightingale Theatre still exists as an organisation, but it's mm. lost its home, uh, which was by the train station. Uh, the basement was a wonderful little studio space, which is still a space, but it's no longer sort of... Uh, it's not presenting as much work as it used to do. Mm. Uh, we are hoping that the Marlborough Theatre doesn't go. Mm. There was talk about the, yeah. the brewery wanting to rebrand it. Uh, and without those small independent spaces, there is, you know, there is the, the, the pavilion studio, there is the corn exchange, and there's the big dome. Mm. And we know that in the next year or so, mm. that's going to be compromised. Yeah, we're, we're about to embark on a really exciting uh, redevelopment of the corn exchange and the studio spaces. But it does mean that we will be 
dark in those spaces for for quite a period of time. So that's you know I think it's about focusing on the long term benefits that that will hopefully have. Olaf Flanagan and Tim Crouch. The stage's Brighton critics, Tom Wicker and Tracy Sinclair, have been running around Brighton for the last few weeks seeing shows, one of which, as Tom explains here, was called The Marlowe Papers. The Marlowe Papers is is a kind of conspiracy theorist's dream, and it, and it plays on, on a very old idea that William Shakespeare was probably just some hick from the country. That Christopher Marlowe uses William Shakespeare as a frontman for the fact that he is in fact a spy for the British and... Various contrivances mean that he has, to, he has to have his death staged and he is exiled to France and continues writing but under the name of William Shakespeare. And the problem with this show was that it was stretched to two hours when it could easily have been 60 minutes because as an adaptation of, the, of a novel, it suffered from just trying to do too much, mm. not finding a clear or straightforward purpose from Absolutely. the start. Absolutely. And the second half was really sharp. But by then, I mean, Tom liked it slightly more than I did. I'd kind of lost interest. And it was a great central performance, wasn't it? I mean, it was very, you know, again, I think Tom described it as a bond-storming performance. And it was. He was physical. He was in your face. But it, it was too long. And the first half was very unfocused. And it was when it found its feet, it was basically a man stuck in a strange kind of limbo, both living a life but not able to mm. live it fully. And and if they had pursued that line from the start, 60 minutes, one man, the intensity that comes with that in a small space, even though it was in Studio 2 of The Warren, which means we could hear all of the traffic. But somehow it made sense, given that a lot of the play was about the kind of chaotic hurly-burly of London. It didn't matter that much. But I think if it had just had the courage of pairing back right from the beginning it would have earned probably Trace's attention more in the second half than it did. Speaking of the Warren Theatre too, which is the noisiest theatre in the world, one of the shows I saw was And the Rope Still Tugging Her Feet, which was set in rural Ireland in 1984. And it's a story that's probably very unfamiliar to most English people, but it was a huge scandal in Ireland, which was a case of a young unmarried mother who was accused of murdering a child because everyone knew she was pregnant, everyone knew she was having an affair with a married man. And then a dead baby was found stabbed to death on the beach. So she was the natural suspect. And you know, it is a country where it's still illegal to get an abortion. So it was very much a piece about what happens to women in a state that has impossible standards to meet, but also kind of has a blind eye to men cheating those standards. I mean, I thought the performer was very, very good. And it was a very moving piece. And actually, it was for a piece about dead babies, it was actually quite funny, you know, because it was very much about the crack and about how, what it's like to be a working class rural Irish person, but also very bitter and very angry about the treatment of women. And, and again, perfectly suited to that sort of hour, hour and 15 space where you don't necessarily want to go into massive amount of deals. You're not necessarily trying to change the world, but you can tell these small personal stories with very, you know, with no sets. I mean, it's one woman on stage. Yeah, you know, this is what a fringe theatre should be. It should be these small personal stories that are enabled to tell in this space rather than having to be made a big deal. Um, I mean, actually, one of the, the other pieces I saw that blew me away was um, Smoke and Mirrors at the Dome. And, you know, and that was, that was again, only an hour long. And again, was actually, interestingly, about capitalism. Um was about how it affects people. Interestingly, it's a man and a woman, and there was also some quite interesting stuff about how it affects women more than it affects men. 
stunning performers. I mean, I'm actually not a huge fan of non-narrative theatre, but I was stunned by it. It was really, I mean, not only was the actual physical stuff just incredibly well done. I mean, you know, I groan when I stand up from a seat and there's a woman hoying herself off ropes. I mean, it opens with a scene where they're both dressed as sort of city businessmen and they're crawling and scrambling over each other and fighting and pushing each other down, even though they're still in the same space and they can't get anywhere. And at the end, it becomes a tender ballet where they're supporting one another and they're moving and they're helping each other up. And it's about, and it's all overlaid with the great dictator speech from Charlie Chaplin about, you know, we need kindness more than cleverness. It really moved me. Sounds like there are a couple of similarities between that and what we saw this evening, Tom, which was a show called Correction. So can you explain a bit about that? Because I I was really struggling to explain it to Tracy earlier. by uh, a Czech company, Verta Dance. Uh, there are about seven performers on stage. They stand in a line and they are fixed in place and it's just really lovely, clownish at times, a physical performance piece in which they're gradually getting used to their bodies. It means falling over, pushing each other. There's, some wonderful, there's a wonderful sense of sort of vibration and cause and effect in the way that they act. And it doesn't do anything massive, but at the same time watching it, watching the, the squabbles and the, and, the, and the fights and the falling over and the sometimes manic episodes of dancing and sometimes the gleeful joy in realising what just you can do standing on your own two feet felt a bit like they were talking about life, but not in a way that felt pretentious or overly philosophical, but sort of joyous and wonderful. And, and gave that sense of progression of life through really simple things, you know, just starting with the fact that they had their eyes closed and then slowly opened their eyes and then they start wiggling their hands and then it starts expanding into the rest of their bodies and then the movements get more and more... It get bigger and bigger and they get more and more intense. Yeah, I mean, I could have done without some of the weirdly wordy, pretentious music in the background I, Do you know what? I loved, I loved the music, apart from the words. The kind, of, the, kind of, the kind of diatribe you come out with at about 11 o'clock after you've been in the pub and think you're being profound. But I would say the music itself, with I think with an oboe and a clarinet. It was all clarinets and it was this strange Steve Reiche minimalism, <laughs> like loads of just repeated rhythms and sounds and it sounded great and it didn't it didn't feel the need to rush and it found humor in the minutiae of exploring how far you can get by pushing one person watching someone else at the end of the line fall over yeah brighton's always an interesting challenge as a place i mean obviously it's on the one hand it's full of london money and it's full of middle class people and but then it's actually quite a chavvy working class town it's a seaside town it's you know blackpool with higher rents and I think the, the Fringe has actually done some quite interesting stuff to address that. You know, it's made a lot of things very cheap. Very, you know, a lot of the Fringe stuff is like a fiver. And it is in venues that aren't intimidating. You know, I mean, the Marlborough's a prime example. You know, you can get a really good cheap pint in the Marlborough. So, you, you know, you can go, you can have a drink, you can see a show. And you can be home by, you know, 10 o'clock with change out of 10 quid in your pocket, really. And actually you think, well, that's what more theatre needs to be. That's it from Tom and Tracy, and that's it from me too. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the stage. If you liked it, please spread the word and stay tuned for more episodes in the near future. Until then, head to thestage.co.uk for the latest news, features and reviews from the world's oldest theatre publication.